It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, is it a sin if I... Part 3, coming up in this episode... Sometimes we as Christians have very specific disagreements between us. For instance, is it a good thing for Christians to get tattoos? Some say yes. Wear the cross of Jesus. Wear the word of God for all to see. Others say no. This is against God's word. So which is it? Should I think before I ink? Now, here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years, and Julie, a longtime CQ contributor, is also with us. Jonathan, what's our theme scripture for today's episode? Colossians 3:17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Sin is a difficult thing to handle. We are constantly challenged to daily live up to godly standards of righteousness. Our social order expands into countless variations of perceived freedoms, and there are many questions that need clarifying regarding what is right and wrong in God's eyes. Today we examine two of those questions. First, is it a sin if I, as a Christian, get a tattoo? Opinions on this question vary to an amazing degree. So, does the Bible give us guidance on this? Second, is it a sin if I get a blood transfusion? While this is perhaps a small issue for most of us, there are some who have very deep convictions on this matter. So what does the Bible say, and what doesn't the Bible say? We receive questions from listeners who message us through the Christian Questions app, or email us at inspiration at christianquestions.com. And many times they're behavior or lifestyle questions that fall into a gray area. So throughout this Is It a Sin series, we're exploring some of these in depth. For example, in episode 1240, part one, we talked about wearing makeup and nail polish, cross-dressing and gambling. And in episode 1241, part two, we addressed various questions about sexuality. So keep sending in your questions. The overriding theme for this series is simple. Ask questions about many everyday cultural, social, and religious things that Christians may have different opinions on and define them scripturally. At the center of this scriptural defining process is our theme scripture, Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So any question we may have about any of our thoughts or words or actions in our lives should always be run through this simple scriptural filter that Colossians 3.17 just showed us. First, what are my thoughts, words, and deeds? What are they? Look at what am I doing, what am I saying, what am I thinking? Secondly, do they, these things, do they scripturally and appropriately fit into the category of being done in the name of Jesus? Are my thoughts, words, and deeds in the name of Jesus and in the context of what Jesus would want me to be doing? And thirdly, can I truly be thankful through Jesus to God for this thought or this word or this deed? So let's. this is the filter to handle these two questions today specifically. With that filter in mind, let's get started on our first topic. Is it a sin to get a tattoo? 
And does the answer change if the tattoo is religious or spiritual? Should I think before I ink? All right. So as we look into some ancient practices of tattooing, let's first put the context of their being forbidden by the Jewish law in place. So Jonathan, let's go to the Jewish law, Leviticus 19, verses 26 to 31. You shall not eat anything with blood, nor practice divination or soothsaying. You shall not round off the side growth of your heads, nor harm the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a harlot, so that the land will not fall to harlotry, and the land become full of lewdness. You shall keep my Sabbaths and revere my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. Well, all things commanded here were for the purpose of defining the Hebrews as the people of God. Their appearance, their society, their religious practices, their morality were all manifestations of their loyalty to God and God alone. Jonathan, you read, you shall not make cuts in your body. Can we look at that more closely? All right. So so these cuts may reference more random and emotionally driven cutting in contrast to tattoos. We're looking at them in slightly different light, which tattoos depict a, a specific design which would have a specific meaning. So let's look at an example of random cutting. The context here is the priests of the false god Baal slashed themselves with swords and spears to show their dedication to their so-called god as they tried to get his attention. This is when Elijah is, is having this standoff with the 450 uh, uh, priests of Baal. Jonathan, let's go to 1 Kings 18, 27 to 29. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a god. Either he is occupied or gone aside or is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. When midday passed, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. <laughs> Self-mutilation was unfortunately a common practice among pagan religions, you well, we have a source, and it's from Britannica.com, and the subject is flagellation, and that's flagellation in religion. Devotional practice of beating with whips, sometimes self-inflicted. In 1259, Hermit of Umbria organized processes, um, processions, I'm sorry, of self-scourging flagellations who practiced the ritual comprising of laypersons as well as clergy from Italy. The practice gradually subsided, but in the 16th century, the Jesuits revived it for a short time. Now, Deuteronomy again mentions that the people of Israel were never to do such things. Deuteronomy 14, 1 and 2. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave your forehead for the sake of the dead. For you are a holy people to the Lord God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. In other words, certain superstitious rituals for mourning the dead were forbidden for the Israelites. 
Okay, so we see that the law puts itself in a very strong position against these kinds of things. It's, it's, it's pretty much an open and shut kind of a case. So the priesthood, you know, this, th- those things that we just talked about in Deuteronomy and Leviticus were for the people in general. But the priesthood specifically was instructed to never make such marks upon themselves either. And I think this ends up being significant for us. Uh, Jonathan, Leviticus 21, verses 5 to 6. They shall not make any baldness on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts in their flesh. They shall be holy to their God, and not profane the name of their God. For they present the offerings by fire to the Lord, the food of their God, so they shall be holy. So they they were holy before God. These are the priests, and such markings were not a symbol of holiness in any way, shape, or form. And Rick, in principle, the priest should have had the pressure of the highest standard. Jonathan, you previously read Leviticus 19.28 from the New American Standard, 1995 edition. It said, you shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourselves. I'm the Lord. And this is, of course, the big scripture people who are against tattooing point to. But here's something interesting. The word tattoo doesn't show up in the English language until about the late 1700s. The King James Version was first published long before that in the year 1611. So could you please read Leviticus 19.28 again from the King James Version? You shall not make any cuts in your flesh from the dead, nor print any marks upon you. I am the Lord. And the word tattoo is missing in the King James. The phrase tattoo marks was added in later translations. The word only appears once in Scripture. The word translated marks means an incision or gash. And the Brown Driver Briggs lexicon says incision, imprintment, tattoo. And from the Jess in U.S. Hebrew Chaldee lexicon, the word marks means stigma a mark branded on the skin. So you have a serious permanent mark by whatever definition you're looking at. And what we're seeing here in Leviticus is, don't do that. Leviticus is being very straightforward. Don't do that. You're my people. Don't do that. Stay away from that kind of activity. And you got to say, okay, well, why was that important? Julie, let's go down a different road here. Well, sure. The Israelites lived between Egypt and Canaan. And very interestingly, Egyptian mummies show decorative tattoos, but only on women. So it's thought that these are either for treating medical diseases or part of fertility rites, like a good luck charm during birth. We found a great article called Wounds Prepared with Iron, Tattoos and Iniquity by Martin Dinter and Astrid Koo. Here's a quick quote. Outside the Greek and Roman world, the significance of tattoos varied widely. In Egypt, tattoos carried magical and religious functions. Mummified corpses reveal that as early as 2000 BC, women received dot pattern tattoos on their abdomens. The purpose was believed to have been the enhancement of fertility. The connection between tattoos and fertility is also perceptible from how these patterns would stretch into symbolic web or netting designs during the pregnancy. This link between fertility and tattooing was deeply rooted in Egyptian culture. Hathor, the the goddess of motherhood, was served by tattooed priestesses. So it's kind of clever that they put these dot patterns, and then as the woman would expand, it would form a net of protection. 
Yeah. Interesting. I, well, you know, and what it does is it gives us a picture of, frankly, superstition because you're painting on the outside what's happening on the inside. And there's this sense of creating something to enhance it to, like you said, bring luck or so forth and so yeah, on. Magical for paganism. Yep. Right, right. So, so this is part of God saying, you're not doing these kinds of things. And you can see how he's drawing his people away from it. From BibleStudyTools.com, just a, a couple of lines here. In Canaan, this is a quote, in Canaan, evidence indicates that instead of marking the body with ink, more extreme scarification measures like branding, slashing, or gashing the skin were used. So it's likely God was forbidding intentionally creating scars and not tattooing as we know it. And continuing from the same article you read from, Julie, long before the Greeks and Romans, however, Near Eastern societies practiced punitive tattooing, a long tradition of forced tattooing had engendered a negative view of tattooing among the Jews. The medieval scholar Maimonides explained that pagans, such as the Canaanites, had tattooed their Jewish captives and thereby consecrated them to idols. Indeed, the Jews viewed tattooing as unlawful due to its historical associations with idolatry and slavery. So you have a very significant history, and you look at it and say, well, no wonder God says don't do this. I mean, the Jewish people, taken as slaves by these other, other nations, sometimes they were tattooed across their foreheads with the name of their owner or, or the nation, or, or it, there are records that they're tattooed on their forehead saying, stop me, I'm a runaway slave. So you have this permanent mark put upon you, and God is saying, you are my people, there is none of that. And you know, the sense is, you're my people. I don't need to mark you, you're my people, you need to just simply follow me by following my precepts. So you really do see some something being laid out here that's very, very significant. So, so Jonathan, labeling sin and living above it, what, what do we have so far? While we have not yet answered the tattoo question for Christians, we have clearly uncovered a principle of godly holiness and separation of one's body from the crowd. And I think that's the key, separation of one's body from the crowd. So God was pretty blunt about what he wanted his people to do and not do. Being different meant everything. With all of that, um, regarding tattoos being said in the Old Testament, where does it leave us now as disciples of Christ? We know that as Christians, we're not bound to the ceremonial rituals of the Old Testament Jewish law. Jesus never mentions anything about body markings regarding his followers. We also know that there were likely many Gentiles who came into Christianity who, for various reasons, would have had body markings. So what are we supposed to do with all of this? You know, you mentioned the Gentiles. That makes me think of the first Gentile convert, Cornelius. It's said that he might have had a tattoo because apparently in the Roman Empire, Roman soldiers were tattooed with permanent dots and they were used as a means of identification and membership in a certain unit. So it'd be interesting that the very first Christian likely was tattooed. And again, you think, why would God call a Roman soldier, first of all, and one who likely had a tattoo? And the point is that it is rising up to from wherever you were, 
rising up to be a follower of Christ. That's really what it comes down to. So with tattooing, there are lots of pros and cons, as, as Christians can debate this back and forth. So let's go through a few of these pros and cons and just kind of lay it out on, uh, on the table for everybody to take a look at, and we'll get into more scriptures. Jonathan, let's start with the cons. Let me start with this. After creating man, God pronounced his creation very good. The skin of humans was beautiful and perfect. When people get a tattoo, they are marring God's work. Why mess up what God created? But on the positive side, wouldn't a Bible-related tattoo be a permanent witness to those around us? Oh, I can see that. But a religious tattoo is not necessarily as a witness. Jesus said the world would know Christians by their love, John 13, 34, and 35. And our characters testify our walk with God, Galatians 5, 22, and 23, fruit of the Spirit. Sure, but today's tattoos are very different from those described in the Bibles, the Old Testament. You know, today they're means of self-expression and their personal decoration. Well, think about this. The only scriptural sanction cutting of the flesh was circumcision. See Genesis 17, 12. It was an outward testimony that an Israelite man had entered into the law covenant with God. This was an important and holy witness. If I was going to give another pro, it would be that although we know tattoos may have had a history in ancient ritual and false religion, in our cultural context today, they don't necessarily denote a connection with an evil or false faith. They're often just ornamentation. And finally, tattoos can bring unnecessary attention to ourselves. They can have negative impacts on future relationships and even employment. They are costly and painful to remove. That is true. Um, but if you're making that decision, even if Leviticus 19, 26 to 31 did mean an ink tattoo, and we don't think it did, it has nothing to do with the moral part of the law that applied to pe all people in all time frames. Remember, Christians aren't bound to the ceremonial part of the law, so any prohibition doesn't apply, which is why we today can eat shrimp and wear linen and wool together. Okay, so a lot of pros and a lot of cons, and you say, where do we go from here? And the answer to that is we go to the scriptures and find the principles. That's what we want to do. And what we're going to do as we find these principles, we're going to find out that the, that the, the New Testament doesn't, doesn't just slam down the idea of tattoos. Okay, I'm just going to put that on, on the table first. It doesn't just say, no, absolutely not, this is forbidden. It doesn't say, yeah, go get one. It doesn't say don't. So this becomes a matter of understanding scriptural principle and applying it personally. So as we go through these principles, we're going to do it with several mirror questions. These are questions, folks, that we ask ourselves in the mirror. I don't ask you. I ask me if I'm considering this kind of activity. First mirror question. Does my desire for a spiritual or random tattoo, notice there's two different kinds of tattoos we're considering here, spiritual or random tattoo, does my desire for one of those potentially cross a line of simply being a sacrificial Christian? Does my discipleship need displaying with permanent markings on my flesh, or does the, my example of a permanently transformed character instead make the point? As a scripture to look at, let's uh, consider Matthew 5, verses 33 to 37. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. 
nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this is of evil. Now, if you're a Christian, live like one with humility. Aren't we supposed to be selfless and be clothed with meekness, not drawing attention to ourselves? We want people to see our character that reflects Christ rather than ourselves. Okay, so it's a pretty simple, pretty straightforward thing. Let your yea be yea. In other words, let your life speak fully and fluently for where you are and what what you're going to do. This has to do with who we are. And, and Jonathan, you know, we've often talked about, you know, the idea of being able to be a witness even if you can't say anything. And That's I know true. I, I know you've had a really interesting experience along those exact lines. Would you mind just take a moment and give us a little bit of that witnessing without words? Well, years ago, I was taking a course on how to create a business. And we all had different ideas for businesses we were pursuing. Well, halfway through this course, I got a phone call from one of the other students. He said he knew I was a man of faith and he needed to talk. Now, I wasn't sure how he knew that because religion never came up in the class. He was really at a low point in his life in contemplating suicide. He asked me what I believe and I shared God's plan for all and how loving and merciful God truly is. This was a comfort to him and we started studying the Bible together and it changed his life. I was grateful the Lord used me to help this wonderful man. And you didn't say a word. You just lived the life. In other words, and and folks, you're going to tell where I fall on this tattoo question when I say this, you didn't need a tattoo with a scripture on your arm to be a living scripture to somebody else. And that, I think, is what the point is in the Matthew scripture. Let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. Okay, that's our first mirror question. Let's go on to another one. Does my desire for a spiritual or random tattoo potentially cross a line of my sacred responsibility in any way? Think about this. Am I lowering my standards to those of the world around me by expressing myself in the same ways they express themselves? Am I bringing myself down to a level where maybe I should be holding a different level. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. And this is from the Young's Literal Translation. Have ye not known that your body is the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit in you, which you have from God? And you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Glorify then God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You know, and there's a really strong sense of glorify God in your body and in your spirit. And, and how do we do that? And, and Jonathan, you, you touched on it earlier by having that humility about us that says, I am just a humble servant given a tremendous privilege of grace and honor. What am I doing with it? How did Jesus draw attention to himself? Not by how he looked, that's for sure. He probably wore the same thing every day for three and a half years. What he did is he drew attention to the word and will of God. That's the example that we have to follow. Let's go on to another mirror question. Does my desire for a spiritual or random tattoo potentially cross a line regarding my personal choices? Am I leveraging the principle of not being prohibited into a way to justify getting what I want at the expense of my highest standards of discipleship. 
What am I doing here? Let's take a look at a short scripture, and then let's get into this a little more. 1 Corinthians 10, 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Now, the Bible doesn't say I can't, so therefore I can, right? No. (laughs) I don't have a tattoo, but do either of you? No, I don't. Nope. Never thought about it. No. (laughs) Okay. So what if I came to you and I wanted a witness by tattooing a scripture or a cross on my arm? What, What would you say, Rick? What I would say to you is... Why do you feel like you have you have a need to make a display when you can just be an example of one who walks behind the cross of Christ? Why do you think you need to make a display when you can live a life that speaks of righteousness and of godliness and of mercy and God's plan? See, to me, it's the highest standard is to be, not to show, it's to be. That, that's what I would say. Let's take a look now at another mirror question. This will be our last one for for this segment. Does my desire for a spiritual or random tattoo potentially cross a line regarding my firm stance against any and every quote-unquote seducing spirit? Now, where are we going with this? Is my spiritual conscience highly functional? Let's look at 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. And this is from the King James Version. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Now that was the Apostle Paul writing, and I found a great commentary by uh, David Guzik. He said this, Paul knew what it was to have a dead, burned conscience. Before he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, he felt completely justified in his persecution of Christians and hatred of Jesus. He could feel justified because his conscience was seared and needed a wake-up call, which the Lord graciously provided. And how fine-tuned is my conscience? Am I living differently than the world, or am I blending in because my thinking is more earthly than spiritual? Our job is not to blend in. And I, I think there's a difference between getting attention by wearing a flashy hat or glitter eyeshadow, because basically a tattoo is permanent and will forever define us. Yeah, you know, and you've got to think about the idea of permanence, because something may be attractive to you now, and you see all the reasons for it now, and then you grow up a little bit, and something happens in your perception of things. When we do something that's going to be permanent, look, marriage is a permanent covenant. It's supposed to be permanent. You don't enter that covenant without serious, serious thought. And I think tattoos, while they're not on the same level as marriage, it is a permanent decision to alter your body. Why? What are the lifetime benefits? What are the lifetime challenges? And where does Christ truly fit in that whole picture? So is getting a tattoo a sin? No. <laughs> After okay. all, all of that, I, I just don't <laughs> see. Yep. I just don't see that the scriptures say you can't do it. However, in my own mind, I see it as what are the highest principles. And I personally, a Rick opinion, I don't see tattoos fitting into the living out of those highest principles. But no, you can't say scripturally it is a sin. 
Okay. So follow-up question. Should I feel bad if I already have a tattoo and then I come to Christ? See, I don't know that I would feel bad because, okay, you've got it. There you were. This is where I, where I come from. Cornelius likely had one. What do you think you can do with that? See, I think that's a can be a great witness. If you've got a tattoo and, you know, and, and maybe you were in the military or something and whatever it is, and somebody says, well, I like your tattoo. You say, you know what? Let me tell you about that. This is who I used to be, but let me tell you who I've become. And whatever it is, even if it's, if it's something that, you know, you're, you're like, ah, really, do I have to carry this around? Look, you could, you could remove it, but if you keep it, it's a reference point to say, let me tell you about what I've learned about life. So I think that it can be used in a very positive way, just like we use bad experiences in our past to say, here's something I've learned. Well, let me ask you one more question. It seems like maybe Jesus has a tattoo because Revelation 19.16 says, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. First, the book of Revelation, and specifically the context of this scripture, is filled with symbolic pictures. True. There's a sword coming out of his mouth. His eyes are like flames of fire, and his robe is soaked in blood. At this point in Revelation, Jesus is a spirit being, and so having a literal robe and literal thigh with writing is unlikely. Now, second, apparently ancient kings and military men did something unique. We will include several Bible commentaries in this week's CQ Rewind show notes. But John Gill suggests either it was written upon that part of his garment which covered his thigh, or else that it was also on his sword, which he sometimes girt upon his thigh. So they'd have their titles embossed on their robes and swords and probably anywhere else they could get their names on. So, so you're seeing a clear picture of identity. And it's interesting that it's showing identity, not some, something else. But it is, like you said, Jonathan, unequivocally a symbol. Let's understand symbols are meant to be symbols not meant to be literal. So when we look at this perspective on tattoos and scriptures and so forth, labeling sin and living above it, Jonathan, what do we have? Tattoos are not expressly forbidden to Christians. If we become a disciple of Christ already having tattoos, we can seek the removal or use them as a witness of what we used to be in contrast to what we are becoming. Seeking a new tattoo should be done with the utmost attention to the spiritual details of our lives as the most important elements of our decision. So think, think, think along spiritual lines before you decide you want to ink. I mean, really, that's what this whole thing absolutely boils down to. There is certainly a lot more to tattoos than we may have previously thought. The bottom line? Be spiritually guided. What about receiving blood when needed? Are blood transfusions allowable for followers of Christ? For many of us, this is not an issue at all, but for some, it ends up being a life and death challenge. For millions of Jehovah's Witnesses and Christian scientists, Christian scientists, incidentally, don't accept any medical treatment at all. For many of these groups, blood transfusions are, in a lo- are, are a line in the sand that cannot be crossed. So while we're not going to focus on deaths and tragic results of this belief, we will 
look into the scriptural reasoning on both sides of the issue so we can find the thus saith the Lord. I recently had surgery and right before I was wheeled into the operating room, the hospital asked if I was a Jehovah's Witness and do I refuse any necessary blood transfusion? And I had to sign a paper where I said, yes, I will accept blood. And many hospitals respect different religious beliefs and try to provide workarounds. So that's very nice. And while we appreciate having strong convictions, this is a situation where the Bible does not directly speak on the topic as there were no blood transfusions in ancient days. According to Wikipedia, by the late 19th century, blood transfusion was regarded as a risky and dubious procedure and was largely shunned by the medical establishment. But of course, that's a different story medically today. So our question is, is it a sin to get a blood transfusion? So we went to JW.org, the Jehovah's Witness uh, website, just to get their ideas on this. And they said this, the Bible commands that we not ingest blood. So we should not accept whole blood or its primary components in any form, whether offered as food or as a transfusion. We avoid taking blood, not only in obedience to God, but also out of respect for him as the giver of life, end quote. Now, it's worth noting that this JW position has changed over time from the original total ban in 1951 in the year 2000, the ban was changed so that it's limited to just whole blood or its primary components, meaning red cell fractions like hemoglobin, the protein that transports oxygen. That's not banned. Same with using what's fractions from red cells, white cells, platelets, and plasma. So receiving bone marrow, for example, is allowed. Okay, interesting. There's a lot of details there, but we really, instead of those details, what do the scriptures say? What is the Bible's perspective on this matter? Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses website uses four scripture passages to defend their position on blood transfusions, and so we want to go through each of those four slowly and carefully. Scripture 1, here's the first text, but we need to understand is the, the context first. Genesis 9, 3 and 4, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So, coming out of the ark, Noah and his family were now specifically instructed along several lines of moral behavior. We're not going to get into all of those other things. We're focusing on just this one piece, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, the blood. This particular aspect of God's commands is interpreted in different ways. So, Julie, let's go back to jw.org and get a sense of that perspective on this specific scripture. Okay, quote, God allowed Noah and his family to add animal flesh to their diet after the flood, but commanded them not to eat the blood. God told Noah, only flesh with its soul, its blood, you must not eat. This command applies to all mankind from that time on because all are descendants of Noah, end quote. And out of respect for the animal, it was to be bled when killed for food. Let's read an excerpt from Gill's exposition of the entire Bible as relates to the phrase, the flesh with its life in its blood. While there is life in the blood, or while the creature is living, the meaning is that a creature designed for food should be properly killed and its blood let out, that it should not be devoured alive as by a beast of prey. That raw flesh should not be eaten. And eating blood is not a blood transfusion. 
That word eat, used in Genesis 9-4, means eat, consume, or devour, literally or figuratively. Okay, so we're talking about eating versus transfusion. A completely diametrically opposite processes. And this is important, folks, because we want to understand what the scriptures mean. So with this Genesis 9, 3, and 4 scripture, we've got some key blood factors here. Let, let's let's put, put them on the table. First, Noah was instructed that the consumption of animals for food would now be acceptable. Second, the focus is on the humane treatment of animals as a food source. And third, the focus is on the importance of blood as the key for life itself in all sentient beings. And Rick, I appreciated what you said to us the other day. The blood is the visible, tangible key to life for humans and animals. Drain it out, and they are no more. And I think that when we look at blood as a symbol in Scripture, having it be that visible, tangible uh, representation of life is key, as we will see unfolded in the Scriptures, to understand why God puts so much emphasis on blood. So put these together now, and this begins our understanding of the blood issue. We observe that partaking of an animal meat as food after it's been properly prepared for consumption has nothing, nothing to do with any conversation or application regarding blood transfusions. The two are completely different subjects. Blood transfusions did not exist. It's using a different system in the body. There is no similarity. Let's be clear on that. Scripture 2. Let's move to the next scripture used by those who refuse blood transfusions. Leviticus 17.10. And any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens or sojourn among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from amongst his people. So the JW Org website says God viewed the soul or life as being in the blood and belonging to him. Although this law was given only to the nation of Israel, it shows how seriously God viewed the law against eating blood. I and again, that. That, that word eat means eat. So we have to keep the, the scriptures in the context in which they were spoken. And, you know, the interesting thing is, you know, the, the, the website talked about God viewed the soul or life as being in the blood and belonging to him. The bottom line is the soul, the being of man, is the combination of the breath of life and the body. That's what it says in Genesis 2-7. So what we're doing is we're, we're trying to parse things down, I think, with this particular view to create a, 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 an interpretation of Scripture that says you can't do this. But folks, the scripture isn't really saying this. Jonathan, let's go to Deuteronomy uh, to confirm the seriousness of this aspect of the law. Deuteronomy 12, 23 and 24. Only be sure not to eat the blood, for the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it out on the ground like water. And just as a side note, the reason the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses say that for forbidding the donating and storing of blood is because of that verse 24, that not only should you not eat it, but you're supposed to pour it on the ground. So you're not supposed to be stored. It's returned to God, as it were. I know I'm repeating myself, but um, the scripture says this has to do with eating. Uh, you know, am, am I missing something? 
I don't see a correlation to blood transfusions in all the verses we've read. And where this seems to have gone sideways is the fact that the JW command in 1951 was originally based on the misconception that food was converted into blood and that blood itself was what actually nourished the body. Okay, so that's an interesting misconception, and I want to stress that because you're, you're, you're drawing a, a conclusion. It's important to understand that eating and transfusing are two different bodily processes. Blood which is eaten is digested and then destroyed. Blood which is transfused is not eaten. It's not digested. It's not destroyed. Why? Because eating blood involves the body's digestive system. Transfusion involves the circulatory system. And you just have to put this all in order. It's, I understand the seriousness with which several millions adhere to, to this, this idea. But understand the scriptures are not showing us the validity of, of this idea according to Scripture. So Jonathan, uh, let's get a little bit more in, of an important perspective and, and a powerful why for this matter in Leviticus. Let's go back to Leviticus 17, verses 8 to 11. Then you shall say to them, Any man from the house of Israel, or from the aliens or who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice, and does not bring it to the doorway of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man also shall be cut off from the people. Well, well, notice the penalty for not bringing a sacrifice to the door of the tabernacle. It was being cut off from the people. Well, continuing in verse 10, And any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. So that's interesting. Here's the same penalty for not bringing a sacrifice to the door of the tabernacle as is someone who eats blood. So this kind of helps us see that one infraction held the same penalty as the other. Yeah, and we want to be clear on that. Where This is not an infraction that stands head and shoulders above and beyond and uniquely uh, appropriate for some reason. It is in a list of other things. And so we look at this as part of the ceremonial law and understand that that's exactly what it was. And we have to view these things in their appropriate context. Blood is important, though. It's truly important. Jonathan, let's go back to verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. This is why blood is so important. The life of humanity is represented in our blood. That's key. There is no better symbol of that life as it carries life support throughout the entire body. And God saw this as a way to make a most dramatic point about his plan for redemption. The shed blood of Jesus atoned for Adam. And so blood is critically important from God's eyes to our lives. So how do we put that in perspective? Well, there's two very important points regarding God's message here regarding blood. The first point, God's requiring blood sacrifices from the start shows us that from the moment of Adam's sin, humanity needed redemption. Remember how Abel's sacrifice way back in the beginning, Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's sacrifice was not? The first human death was marked by God calling attention to Abel's shed blood. Genesis 4, 9-11. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, 
What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Well, Abel's blood, the symbol of his life, was spilled upon the ground, and a curse resulted upon Cain. This reinforces the sacredness of life. Yeah, and, and it's interesting that God gives the blood a voice, figuratively, obviously, to say his life, his life is calling to me from the ground. You can see how important blood is because it's that tangible representation of the sacredness of life. And as we'll see, that's why the blood of Jesus becomes so critical to every Christian. The second point regarding God's message with blood here is this. Leviticus is telling us that blood sacrifices were the pathway to atonement with God. We know this from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. For the law, since it has only a shadow of good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offered continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All those sacrifices were pointing to and showing the ransom price of Jesus, who shed his blood once as an atonement for the sins of Adam. We agree with sacredness of blood, but we don't want to confuse blood sacredness with transfusions and eating blood. Blood is a symbol for life. It's also important to note that the Bible only references eating animal blood because of our diet. It technically is not addressing human blood, as with transfusion. And I do get confused as to how these scriptures we've gone over so far, having to do with the death of an animal, can be used to even prevent banking your own blood for a medical procedure. In that case, no one has died. The blood is put back into the person from whom it's taken. And even donating blood doesn't mean that the donor has died. Right, right. So, you know, there, there's a lot to this. And we look at it and say, okay, what do the scriptures say? And what we're seeing is a stark difference between eating blood in the law versus transfusing blood in a medical procedure. They're, they're absolutely positively as far separated as they can be. One of them is there specifically to save and preserve human life. And that's a wonderful thing to think about. So labeling sin and living above it, Jonathan, let's, let's put this in perspective and then we'll move on to the next piece. Blood is a comprehensive representation of life. Israel was to be merciful in the killing of animals for food or sacrifice, and the handling of the blood of those animals was to be respectful. Blood sacrifices pointed to Jesus and his own shed blood. Within all these verses, there is absolutely zero correlation between the eating of the blood of a dead or dying animal and the receiving of the blood from a living being to protect and save the life of a living being. So it's very clear, it's very simple thus far. We need to hold the scriptures in the highest regard. God's instructions to Israel were sober and they were clear. Let's be sure to apply these things only in the way they were meant to be applied. Now we have a clear Old Testament perspective, but does the New Testament address the blood transfusion question? 
Well, the short answer to this is no, because the whole idea of blood being transfused to save a life is not even hinted at in Scripture. However, we do have several scriptural principles that clearly show us how the New Testament's application and symbol of blood goes far beyond the Old Testament guidelines. The third scripture passage used by those who refuse blood transfusions is in Acts 15. Acts 15 records a meeting called the Jerusalem Council. We think it was about around 48 AD, years after the crucifixion of Jesus. The primary debate and why this council was called was whether or not Gentiles following Jesus would need to be circumcised. But the overall question was, would Gentiles have to first convert to Judaism in order to be worthy to accept Christ? And the result of the council was that Gentiles did not have to observe the Mosaic law. However, it was recommended that four requirements be observed in order to prevent stumbling Jewish Christians. Let's read from Acts 15, 19 through 21. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they, number one, abstain from things contaminated by idols, number two, and from fornication, number three, and from what is strangled, number four, and from blood. For Moses, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Now the JW.org quote on this says, God gave Christians the same command that he gave to Noah. History shows that early Christians refused to consume whole blood or even use it for medical reasons. Now there was no source for that. I, I couldn't find anything where the early Christians wouldn't use it for medical reasons. So again, note that what they say, refuse to consume whole blood. And again, that whole blood only is a recent change. The components of blood aren't addressed. Now, the reasoning is, Jonathan, when you said from things strangled, meaning according to the old law, eating meat with blood. And when you said, and from blood, an expansion of a law to not use blood in any way is how they're interpreting and from blood. So here's the whole issue. The idea of abstaining from blood is being interpreted and expanded as you don't eat it or take it into your veins. And here I'm just going to respectfully ask, could this randomly be expanded further to say, don't touch blood so you can't go into the medical field? Like how far are you going to take the interpretation? Well, and the issue is that it's an interpretation that doesn't have a basis in scriptural context. And so we have to go back to that issue and say, let's be careful to not go down roads that don't have a scriptural basis. When we're starting to create a meaning, we're starting to veer off of God's meaning. And then we have to choose whose meaning are we going to follow. Nowhere in scripture is it ever remotely mentioned about taking anything into your veins. It's not. So we have to be clear on that and, and have, use our highest spiritual integrity to say, let's follow what the scriptures say. Having said that, let's move a little further now. And, and again, we're, we're referencing the Acts 15 scripture as this third uh, text that needs understanding. The Apostle Paul clearly taught later on that eating meat offered to idols was not an inherent sin. Sin became a potential in relation to the person's motivation uh, the, the personal motivation of the individual doing the eating. We can see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 
8, verses 4, and then 7 through 9. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. Now look, he says there's no such thing as an idol in the world. Well, there were lots of idols in the world. What he's saying is they're meaningless. They're statues. They're wooden. They don't hold spiritual value. Let's go with verse 7. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. There was a lot of Christians coming in from paganism, and they had the sense, the, the sense of these idols meaning something very, very, very valuable, and had to unlearn that. And it would have been hard to just say, okay, that's meaningless, when my entire life I've bowed down and worshipped to it. It's hard, and the, and, and the apostle is being sensitive to say some of us may have that sensitivity. And also, some of the Jewish Christians might have had that sensitivity because they're looking at it saying, that's nothing, that, that's, that shouldn't be touched, and you know, anything in relation to that should be put aside. So the apostle is looking at this and saying, there's a sensitivity that we have to be aware of. Let's go to verses 8 and 9. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So the Apostle Paul is teaching us deep scriptural, spiritual principles. Paul teaches us how to know our liberty and now how others of our fellowship view that liberty and to always be aware of those who are sensitive according to their own conscience. In teaching these deep principles of conscience, Paul was stepping beyond what the Acts 15 conference had decided. But this seems like a contradiction. Paul was at that council where it was decided to abstain from things contaminated by idols here in 1 Corinthians 8, and it's even repeated in Romans 14, 12 to 17. He says you can eat meat offered to idols. Is he contradicting what they agreed upon? Well, Paul expanded on the matter by saying the truth is things like meat offered to idols don't actually contaminate the meat. In Acts 15, there was a compromise made for the sake of unity and maintaining peace. If you and those you meet with don't have a problem with this, then eat the meat. It doesn't matter unless it matters to those around you. It's a matter of conscience and of respect for the brotherhood. And see, that's the thing. It's a matter of conscience and respect for others. So the Apostle Paul is going beyond the Acts 15 uh, conference by saying, here's the bottom line truth, and here's how and why it doesn't matter. That is, unless it does matter, because somebody would be stumbled. You can see how he's so sensitive while he's speaking bottom line truth. This is, seems like the, a similar discussion that we had with the tattoos. It's a matter of conscience and a personal decision. Yes, very, very, very much so. So let's move on from that. Jesus taught some very hard lessons for his fo- fellow Jews to hear about when he, and he, when he talked about blood. And this would have been a shocking teaching, John chapter 6, verses 53 to 55. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Wow. Talk about a tough thing to hear. Jesus' point here is that he truly did fulfill 
all aspects of the law. To eat his flesh in symbol is to partake of the sacrifice of his broken body. To drink his blood in symbol is to personally apply the merit of his sacrificed life. His sacrifice needs to nourish you and buy you back from sin. But at face value, this would have been a very repulsive statement after all the scriptures we've gone through about blood. Yeah, it would have been. And and as a matter of fact, the context goes on to say many Jews did not follow him after that. because And it says, I like the way it says in the King James Version, they couldn't stomach it. So, yeah, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm not surprised. So and, and he did that on purpose to say, I'm teaching you things that are beyond what you've ever known before. I mean, let's remember, Jesus fulfilled all aspects of the law. He made that very plain in his teachings, as, as did the apostles in the New Testament. We have partaken of his blood, had his blood applied to us, and we are freed from the law as a result of his shed blood. Romans 10.4 is very clear on this. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The end of the law. What's the end of the law? Christ is the end of the law. Once again, we see that in other scripture, in this case the Acts 15 scripture, which talks about you know abstaining from blood, has zero correlation with anything remotely related to blood transfusions. You can't get one out of the other. Scripture number four. Let's go to the last text cited by those who refuse blood transfusions. Colossians 1.20 And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And the quote on that scripture from JW.org, There are sound medical reasons to avoid blood transfusions. More important, though, God commands that we abstain from blood because what it represents is sacred to him. So I, I would answer that true. You know, mistakes like given the wrong blood type can be harmful or even fatal. And early on, diseases like AIDS were transferred through infusions. But today we've got laparoscopic surgeries and other so-called bloodless techniques that are popular. They involve less blood less infections, and easier recoveries. So, you know, you look at all of this and you put it all together. And again, in this scripture, you know, this scripture is talking about through the blood of his cross. So let's examine this. You know, let, 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 let's look at some of the context of this verse, and it helps us to see just how Jesus puts the sacredness of blood in context. And when we look for the context, folks, what we're looking at is a scriptural statement that tells us where blood is fits, and therefore where it doesn't fit. So Colossians 1, 17 to 20. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Okay, so we see the comprehensiveness of the role that Jesus' blood and his sacrifice plays. It's through the application of Jesus' blood that all of God's plan works. To have this blood applied means we partake of it. Again, and I know we're repeating ourselves, zero correlation to blood transfusions. 
The Jehovah's Witness concept of blood transfusions sounds to me like the parable of the old garment with a new patch. You're stretching something that can't be stretched, and it ruins everything. For more on this parable, listen to episode 1243, Am I Putting New Wine in Old Wineskins? Go to ChristianQuestions.com or the CQ app and enter the episode number into the search bar. Keeping the integrity of Scripture is of the utmost importance when we have these kinds of questions that work with our morality. So, so finally, one, one last Scripture. Finally, any contact with blood uh, was a reason for Old Testament uncleanness. Remember, you know, you're unclean for seven days. You touch blood and you have to be separated from the people and so forth. The New Testament... The New Testament reverses that when Jesus' blood is applied. This is, this is almost shocking when you realize the reversal here. This is Revelation 7, verse 14. I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This scripture is describing the great multitude, also known as the great company in heaven. We just discussed this scripture at length last week on episode 1250, What Will We Be Doing in Heaven, part three. So what you have here is the these individuals washing their robes in the blood of the Lamb. In now, blood. Right, right. <laughs> and that's exactly the opposite of the Old Testament. And what God is showing us through all of this is that how blood brings life and how important it is to sustain life. And, and, and so you have a tremendous, tremendous symbol here that's very positive. It's not something to, to stay away from. You look at this and you rejoice in the properties of blood as explained in the New Testament. So is it a sin to get a blood transfusion? But conversely, is it a sin to refuse one? Okay. Is it a sin to get a blood transfusion? I absolutely, positively believe, no, it is not. The scriptures don't even give us a hint toward that thinking. And when we try to apply scriptures in that way, I truly, truly, truly believe we are stretching them beyond where they belong. Is it a sin to not get a blood transfusion? Well, let me ask you, if your child is potentially on their deathbed, and you have the opportunity to save them by giving them blood, will you not do that because medicine gives you the ability to take advantage of that? See, I think it is a sinful action based on Scripture. And folks, it's based on Scripture. And I realize the consciences of individuals come, come into play here. I understand, I understand, but please, let's make our consciences work along the lines of Scripture not an organization, but of Scripture, because that is what God has given us. So, Jonathan, let's wrap this up. Labeling sin and living above it. Our symbolic partaking of the blood of Jesus helps us see that his blood actually feeds us life. Because the Old Testament scriptures on drinking blood are all based on the ceremonial law which Jesus nailed to the cross, we are free to claim the cleansing power of Jesus' blood. Let us embrace the modern medical wonders of applying the life-saving properties of human blood from donor to recipient, and thank God for the life we are given. And really, that's the key. Thank God for the life we are given. Thank God that we live in a time where we can be 
buttressed in our lives, have our lives saved by these medical miracles of figuring out how all this works and the, and the role that blood plays for our well-being. Folks, listen, we've talked about two very important con- uh, questions that people have about sin. We talked about tattoos, we talked about bl- blood transfusions, and in both cases, we're looking at what do the scriptures say and what don't the scriptures say. Then base your conscience on the scriptures. Not on what you like, like, or think, or want, but on the scriptures. It's so critically important. Think about it. Listen, folks, we love hearing from our listeners. We welcome your feedback and questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Coming up in our next episode, is it a sin if I celebrate Halloween? <laughs> 